flying up here that I had the message and it uh, seemed like the Lord kind of moved my heart and I tried to talk him out of it uh, but he was seemed to be a little bit fixed on it and so I'm just going to try to obey the Lord tonight good to have several preachers with us tonight I'm honored that you're here and uh, I, I know how it is the first time you come to a place I don't know you you don't know me I'm only here for two nights it takes at least that long for us to even look each other over see if we like each other and um you bring a new preacher in, I know exactly how it is. You're looking at me, can he preach? I'm looking at you, can you take it? And um, I'm guessing we'll find out here in a little bit, won't we? Huh? Jeremiah chapter number 32. I want to read one verse, and then I will stay in the chapter tonight. One verse. Every preacher here has preached this passage. And if a thousand preachers have preached this text... 990 of them have used the exact same outline. The exact same outline. Years ago, some preacher, nobody knows who, wrote a little outline. And everybody's used it. Such a good outline. I'm going to use it myself tonight. <laughs> Jeremiah 32 and verse 17. Ah, Lord God. Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. You believe that? There is nothing too hard for thee. When theologians talk about the attributes of God, they sometimes divide them into two categories. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. An incommunicable attribute is an attribute that belongs only to God. Eternity, self-existence, infinity, omniscience. We don't share that with God. A communicable attribute is an attribute that God shares with his creatures. Love, goodness, kindness. I don't know if that is even the best classification, but it is one way... That we try to wrap our minds around who God is and what kind of a being that he is. And if that classification holds true across the board, then omnipotence is an incommunicable attribute. It belongs only to God. Over and over the scripture calls him the almighty God. Not mighty, but almighty God. Because we cannot imagine a God who can think it but not do it does not have the power to carry out his will. He says, my counsel shall stand, I shall do all my pleasure. I have spoken it, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. I cannot imagine a God any other way. I've got a little book in my library by A.W. Tozier, The Knowledge of the Holy. Excellent little book on the attributes of God. And A.W. Tozer said that because God is so powerful, he can do anything as easily as he does anything else. There's no task that challenges him. There is no work that tires him. So everything that he does, he does without effort. It was as easy for God to create the stars of the sky as it was for him to create the grass of the field. At creation, he worked without tools. He had no blueprints from previous creations. There was no material from previous worlds. He didn't have any help from the angelic host. How wonderful is the work of creation. 
put all of the scientists in the world together in one war, in one room and commission them to make one fly. That's all. It can't be that hard. One fly. They will fail miserably. Yet my God made the fly and everything around the fly. But as great as the work of creation, it actually is not his greatest work. The greatest work of the power of God is the work of redemption. Only an omnipotent God has the power to redeem us from a world of sin and to bring the clean out of the unclean and to declare the guilty righteous and to bring life out of the grave. What greater power is there when God found you, you, in all of your sin and righteousness and cleans you up and puts you on a pew with a Bible in your lap? What great power there is in my God. How big is God? How big and wide is vast domain? To try to tell these lips can only start. He's big enough to rule the mighty universe, but small enough to live in my heart. But I think that in a lot of our churches and our preaching, we have theology light. Because we rarely think very deeply about God. Sometimes it is good to allow your mind to go to the very limit of its understanding in the Godhead. And when you have gone as far as you can understand and realize there's still a whole lot of God out there that you cannot conceive. To know that my God is bigger than me and he's bigger than my understanding and he is bigger than my problems and to know that God is more powerful than the governments of the world. We used to sing as little children, he's got the whole wide world in his hand, he's got you and me brother and you and me sister in his hand. We quit singing that when we came out of kindergarten, but I'm wondering if we ought to not go back and sing it again. He's got the whole world in his hands. What a powerful God. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you believe that or not. Because we talk a lot of theology from the head. But theology is supposed to get in the heart. You see, theology is not an academic exercise that we just read from a book. It is a living truth that is supposed to get in our heart and to give us some assurance and some hope and some comfort in this dark world. And, and maybe God is all-powerful over the universe, but I'm not sure that God can handle my situation. Oh, what I'm facing right now in my life is probably a little bit too big for this God. And it's not as if God is going to work everything out the way that I think that he will. It's not that God answers every prayer the way that I want him to. It's not that Christians never get sick or they always get healed. We live in a cursed world and it's a harsh world and it's a hard life. But juxtaposed against the harshness and the hardness of life, there is still a God that is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful. And I don't know when and I don't know why and I don't know how, but I do know who and that's enough to carry me through these days. Is there anything too hard now, Jeremiah chapter 32, there, there is a historical context to the chapter. Because if ever there was a people that needed that message, it was these people in Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, Israel right now is in the midst of a war. Uh, attacked several weeks ago, their Pearl Harbor, their 9-11 all wrapped up in one. 
We're seeing things happen right now in the Middle East and, and none of us really know how it's going to play out, but, but Israel as a nation is in dire straits. In Jeremiah 32, they were in dire straits as well. You see, Israel had been a divided nation for hundreds of years and roughly 150 years prior to this chapter, half of the nation has been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Now the other half is getting ready to fall to the Babylonians. And the last king is a man named Zedekiah. And he is a puppet king. He's as weak as the president as we have right now. This is Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Ten years before Jeremiah 32, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem and made it a vassal state. And he installed Zedekiah as his puppet king. You take orders, you pay tribute, and everything will be just fine. But ten years later, Zedekiah began to feel like that he was more powerful than what he really was. And he decided he would revolt against Babylon. Made a foolish choice and he decided to make alliances with Egypt. And, and together with Egypt, they were going to rebel against Babylon. And there was one preacher, only one preacher that dared to stand up in his face and say, this is not a good idea because, because Nebuchadnezzar is actually the servant of the Lord. God sent him here to punish his people. You better not do that. That man's name was Jeremiah. You can read about that in verse 1 through 5 in this chapter. He stood in the face of Zedekiah and he said, if you do this, if you rebel, then, then here's what's going to happen. He said, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He's going to destroy the city. He's going to take you into captivity. And for his sermon, Zedekiah put him in a dungeon, put him in prison. But everything that Jeremiah said came true. Nebuchadnezzar responded to the revolt by destroying Jerusalem, took thousands of exiles to Babylon, captured Zedekiah and his sons. He took his sons and he executed each one of his sons and then put Zedekiah's eyes out, marched him to Babylon, put him in prison, and there he died. That's the context of this chapter. Now when you get to verse number 6, and I can't read it for sake of time, but verse 6 through verse number 15 is a real estate transaction. Now this is a strange place to have a real estate transaction, but there is a purchase of a property. Now my sons and I, we dabble in property and buy and sell a little bit here and there. And, and there's one consideration in, in real estate. It is location. Location, location, location. What's the school district? How is the crime? Who's moving in? Who's moving out? And, and, and how are the neighbors? And, and is there a neighborhood watch? And, and so location is very, very important. Well, Jeremiah's cousin comes, nephew comes to him, and he offers to sell him a field, a piece of property. And God told Jeremiah, it's a good deal. You need to buy it. Now, here is the problem. It's in a war zone. If I could say it would be akin to buying some property in Gaza right now. Probably not a good deal, alright? It's a war zone. Jeremiah has just said that Nebuchadnezzar's coming. He's going to wipe out the city. We're all going to the exile. This is where the property is. And so it doesn't seem like that this is a good deal. But Jeremiah buys the property as a testimony to the promise of God. Because God has told him that 70 years down the road, I'm bringing you back into the land. Buy the property now by faith, by uncredited as a testimony to the nation that I will bring you back. 
Jeremiah buys that property through verse number 15. Now, in verse number 16, he buys the property, and in verse 17, he begins to pray. In verse 17 to verse 25, he prays. He goes out to that field. I can see him get on his knees in the middle of that field, and he begins to pray. It is a strange prayer. Because in his prayer, he doesn't make one single request. He doesn't ask God for anything. Did you know it's possible to talk to God and not ask Him for anything? That sometimes you can tell God about what you need. Sometimes you can just tell God what you believe about Him. So Jeremiah begins to pray. Here's how he begins it. Oh, Lord God. Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power. Stretch thy arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. He prays all the way down to verse 25. Sometimes when you talk to God, God talks back to you. So in verse 26, God responds to his prayer. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is there anything too hard for me? Basically, God borrowed Jeremiah's words, put it in a question, and read it back to him. A puppet king is on the throne. The prophet is locked up in prison. Nebuchadnezzar is on the march toward Jerusalem. And there is nothing, there is nothing too hard for my God. You know, sometimes you and I have knowledge of the future but we have no power over the future. You may know ahead of time that, 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 that the company is downsizing and you're going to lose your job. You may know ahead of time that, that the report that the doctor gave, that, that this is how it's going to play out in the next year, and, and you, you have a certain knowledge of, of what's coming down the pike, but there is nothing that you can do about that. About a year ago, I was in... I was in, in Pensacola and I was on Davis Highway, which is a very busy uh, 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 highway in, in Pensacola. And I was stuck in traffic. I, I couldn't back up. I couldn't go forward. And traffic was stopped. And I looked in my rearview mirror and there was a one-ton box truck about 100 feet behind me. And I could tell that he was coming at a very high rate of speed. He was probably on his phone, probably texting. He didn't see me. He was headed right toward me. I can't get out of his way. I am stuck. And for a split second, I had knowledge of what was about to happen. But I had no power over it. And there was nothing I could do except just watch it happen. Now, thankfully, he looked up at the last minute, swerved his truck, rushed right by me, landed, stopped about 100 feet in front of me, and, and so the Lord spared me. But I had knowledge of what could happen, but I had no control over the circumstance. You, you have been in similar situations. In fact, you might be in a similar situation right now that I've got something in my life that I have no control over, but just because you don't don't have any control doesn't mean that God doesn't have any control and there's nothing there's nothing too hard for my God I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be as simple as I can tonight and again and again somebody wrote this out loud thank God for him but it's in the text number one there is no promise too hard for God to keep would you look at verse 21 with me look at verse 21 has brought forth thy people he's, he's praying to God has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, with a strong hand, with a stretched out arm, and with great terror. 
Thou hast given them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. So Jeremiah's praying in the field. And in his prayer, he reminds God of something that he had done for his people thousands of years earlier. He takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 where God made a covenant with Abraham that I'll give this land to your seed. Israel and the Palestinians have been fighting over that land for thousands of years. By the way, I'll tell you who's going to win the war in the Middle East. Jesus is going to win the war in the Middle East. So he's, he's praying. Now, now, now catch the phrase in verse 22. Let's give them this land. Here it is which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them. He's reminding God of a promise that God had made to their fathers. That promise we call the Abrahamic covenant, one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. Now, cast your eyes down to verse 37. Verse 37, this is the Lord responding. Behold, I'll gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury. And in great wrath, I will bring them again unto this place. I'll cause them to dwell safely. They should be my people. I'll be their God. Watch this. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. We call this the new covenant that God not only one day will bring them back but he'll give them a new heart and the final fulfillment of that passage is the millennial reign of Christ so catch this Jeremiah references a promise that God had made thousands of years earlier and so God makes another promise that's going to be kept thousands of years down the road if you still list those two promises those are some of the top promises in all of the Bible. And I came to Salisbury, North Carolina just to tell you tonight that we live by the promises of God. We are filling up the counselor's office and we're keeping the psychiatrist busy and we're taking antidepressants. Maybe what we ought to do is start talking to God and taking him at his word. I'm not a medical doctor. Nothing I say can be misconstrued as medical advice. But we are a drugged out nation that cannot cope without a bottle or without a pill. We're taking more pills than we can count. We have more mental illnesses that we can count. But the Christian has a Bible and he has the Holy Spirit and he's got a church and he's got, he's got the promises of God and you don't have to live in anxiety or fear or worry. Isn't it amazing that we are the most progressive and the most prosperous generation ever and we are stressed out. We, we are depressed. Rest. We have multiplied our possessions, but we have multiplied our worries with them. Let me help you with an anxiety pill, all right? If you need an anxiety pill, here is one for you. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts That's better than Xanax. That's better than Valium. You cannot medicate a spiritual problem away. Only the peace of God can help you with that. And you don't have to get drugged out to have peace if you've got Jesus in your heart. I'm trying to say there's no promise too hard for God to keep. And we live by the promises of God. We're, 
worry. Somebody said that worry is like a, like driving down a dirt road. When you drive down a dirt road and your tires kind of create a little indention in the road, and then when you come back, and the indention is just a little bit deeper, and, and after a while, you created ruts down that dirt road, a little hump in the middle, and if you do it long enough, you don't even have to steer. Your tires just automatically go in the rut, and you can just go along. And there are some people like that, that they worry, and they worry, and they worry, and all the time just worry, and they're fretting, and fretting, and worry, and, and, and after a while, you don't even have to have anything to worry about. Your mind just automatically goes down those ruts, and you don't even know why you're worrying. You're just worrying to worry. But you and I, no, listen, I am in the center of God's will. I'm doing my best just to follow Him, and I know that God has a purpose for my life, and I delight in His will, and I'm here till He takes me home, and why would I want to stay a minute longer? And his, my life is in His hands, and He's committed Himself to my care. Amen. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He said, Behold the fowls of the air. He said, They sow not, neither do they reap nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Amen. Are ye not much better than they? We, we, we call that a, 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 a lesser to greater argument. Jesus makes a point about a small thing, and if the small thing is true, then you've got to know the big thing is true too. If, if the lesser is true, then how much more the, the, the thing that is greater. So if God feeds the birds, then God will feed you too. Birds don't sow. Birds don't reap. They have no way to produce for themselves. All they can do is open their mouth and ask God to fill it. And, and God fills it. And if God will feed the sparrows, and if God will feed the ravens, then I know that God will feed you too. Amen. I traveled some time ago. I, I, it's been some time now, and uh, I'd stopped in, uh, in a McDonald's to to get a couple of hamburgers, just eat on the road. It's not real food, but but it's all I had. I had to go. So I pulled up to the driveway. Pulled up to the driveway. Very precise. She said, "Can I help you?" I said, "Yes. I'd like to have two cheeseburgers, no mustard, no onions, and a sweet tea." She said, would you like to have fries with that? No. I want two cheeseburgers. No onions, no mustard, and sweet tea. I pulled up to the window, gave my money, got the bag. I knew. I should have checked it before I drove off. But I was in a hurry. I thought I was clear. Two cheeseburgers. No onions and no mustard. That's nasty. Ain't nobody can eat that. I got on the road, Brother Chris. If I'm lying, I'm dying. One of them cheeseburgers didn't have no mustard, but it had onions. There was a cheeseburger, it didn't have no onions, but it had mustard. I got in the flesh. Got in the flesh. Shouldn't have done it. Got in the flesh. Got in the flesh. Sitting in that driveway, I took that cheeseburger, just disgusted. How can you, how can you mess that up? That's right. How difficult is that? And I took that, I took that cheeseburger, I just, I just chunked it out, just chunked it out the window. I can't eat that nasty, just chunked it out the window. And as soon as I did, here's three or four little spirits, just, one, just started eating my cheeseburger. All that happened is God fed some of his birds on my bill that day. He says, are ye not much better than they? The animal rights worker would say no. Man's been living like an animal for so long, they want animals to live like man. Oh my. 
That's why $35 billion will be spent this year in America on pet food. $35 billion. Huh? I told my young man, I said, fellas, if you want to start a business, got some businessmen, I said, take two of, the, two of the hottest businesses in America right now. It's storage buildings and it's pet supplies. Because people are going to have their stuff and they're going to feed their dog. Fluffy is going to be taken care of. But Jesus said, Jesus said that ye are of much more value. If God feeds them, God will feed you. And God will take care of me right up to the time that it's time to take me home. I say to you that there is no promise too hard for God to keep. I've got to hurry. I just noticed the watch. I've got to hurry here. No only is there no promise too hard for God to keep. But there is no prayer too hard for God to answer. Remember, remember, Jeremiah's prayed doesn't, doesn't make any request. We've done that before, haven't we? Lord, I just want to come and say thank you. You've done so much for me, I'd be ashamed to ask you to do anything else. So I just want to say thank you for what you've done. And we're encouraged to bring our request to the throne of God. I just want to say thank you. Notice what he says in verse 21. Look at it. He says, Thou hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders with stretched out strong arm, hand and with a stretched out arm and with great prayer. Now, now he, he's praying. He reminds God of one of those great promises and he reminds God of that great deliverance, greatest miracle in the Old Testament, crossing the Red Sea. That night, one to two million Jews walked out of Egypt. They had been slaves for 400 years. And the Bible said that night not one dog barked. They had been in the iron grip of Egypt for all of those years. And in one night, God rescued every one of them, parted the Red Sea, gave them a safe passage out of Egypt. But here's what Jeremiah does. He reminds God of that great miracle, but he doesn't tell you why God did that. Did you know that that miracle was a direct answer to prayer? A bunch of beat down slaves with no weapons and no resources and no money facing the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And you know what they did? They prayed. You'll have to write it down because they don't have time to turn there. But Exodus chapter 2, it says they cried. They cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage and God heard. They cried and God heard. And if God can hear the prayer of a broken down slave, I believe that he can hear your prayer. Oh, preacher, my circumstance is too great. I remind you that my God is greater. Prayer. I don't know if we even believe in prayer anymore. Prayer is communication. It's communion with God. And it's not that God will answer every prayer the way that you want Him to pray. But sometimes God answers the prayer and sometimes God changes the circumstances. Sometimes God changes you. And it's not that you go to God with a laundry list every time. Lord, here's, here's my list. It's treating God like a genie in a bottle. No, it's not that. If every time that you call me you needed to borrow $20, after a while, I quit taking your phone call. Is that all that our relationship is, just to borrow money from me? But, but surely, 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 when we go to God, it's not just to get something else from God. Prayer is communion with God. It's you talking to God. It's God talking to you. 
Sometimes he changes the circumstances. Sometimes he changes you. Sometimes he tells you why. Sometimes he says, he says answer me and not know why. But you have never brought a prayer to God where God had to scratch his head. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Oh, there's no prayer too hard for God to answer. Prayer is not, by the way, just asking and receiving. Great book, great book, but John Arise asking and receiving. Great book on prayer. It's not just asking and receiving. And prayer is not, not reading a canned prayer that somebody else wrote for you. It's, it's not, it, 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 we're not Lutherans and Episcopalians. We don't read the Book of Common Prayer. But I think that sometimes in Baptist churches we might as well read it because all the phrases are canned anyway. Huh? Nothing wrong with the phrase, but, but Lord bless the gift and the giver. Well, who started that? Huh? I give you all the praise and glory and the honor. And we don't even know the difference between the three. I'm not picking on anybody. Well, I guess I am. But, 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 we, but, but it's not just reading what somebody else says. It's communion with God. Have you, ever, have you ever started a prayer out and you didn't even have an English word to start it with? That's what Jeremiah did. Here's how he started his prayer. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. Have you ever, you ever been so overwhelmed with God that you didn't even know how to verbalize it? The English language is not adequate right now. Oh, oh, Lord God. I gotta say this, I gotta, and I'm watching the time. I'm watching the time. I gotta say this. My, I've got six grandkids and one on the way, and my oldest is seven, and they are wonderful. I'll tell you about them tomorrow night. Well, in fact, we'll take the whole service talking about my grandkids. But my oldest, Paisley, Paisley's seven, and Paisley got saved a couple of months ago. And we're careful with little children. Do they understand? But boy, she had been she'd been under conviction for a long time, and her mom and dad just kind of you know being careful with her. And she talked to talked to me, me, my wife, and and, and so Sunday morning she came into church and she went into the secretary's office and she said, I I I have to see the pastor, I have to see the pastor, and, and so they found me and, and it was right at church time and I had time to talk to her. But boy, after church, man, it was again, it was all over her. So we went to my office and I talked to her and her mom and dad was there and if I ever seen a little girl get saved I believe she got saved I believe that she did oh it was heavenly, heavenly. last night was in church and it was one of them services where God just decided to come by and, and, and man it, it was getting good youth choir was singing and they're testifying and, and man we was having a good time and, and, and the Holy Ghost well, I'm going to tell you it's a joy when you see the Holy Ghost get on your grandchildren huh it was the first time, it was the first time, Brother Chris, that the Holy Ghost had gone on her and she didn't know what was happening. There was a bubbling, you know that bubbling? There was a bubbling going on in her and she couldn't understand the bubbling. She, she, and so she ran to the nursery real quick because she was about to cry and she didn't know why she was about to cry. So mom, my wife went back there and talked to her and brought her in. But the Holy Ghost was on her last night. Oh, that's wonderful, huh? I'm telling you, just God gets on you and gets so overwhelmed with God. I don't have a little phrase. I don't have a little can say. Just, oh, Lord God. <laughs> no prayer, no prayer. Too hard for God to answer. Can, can, I, can I say tonight that there is no problem too hard for God to solve? See, Jeremiah's been preaching, denouncing sin. Nobody's listening. Preached 40 years. Not a single convert. Jeremiah, the ministerial flop. The sins of the people are so great. It fills up the patience of God and it sends them into captivity. Jeremiah preaches against their idolatry and their immorality and their injustice and their covetousness and their violence. They wouldn't listen. And now the Babylonians are on the march. 
Look at verse 24. He says, Behold the mountains, they're coming to the city to take it. Picture Jerusalem right now. The city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans, that Babylonians. They fight against it because of the sword and of the famine of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken has come to pass. And behold, thou seest it. Trouble is on the horizon. But God, you already see it. God did let the Babylonians overtake Jerusalem. But God limited them to his purpose. And by the way, you'll have to go home and read it. God determined they wouldn't have the last say. The last act will belong to God. God won't keep trouble from coming, but trouble is not going to overwhelm God. He is going to reverse the captivity. He's going to bring them out in His time. And I cannot promise you a life of no trouble. You are going to have your days of impossible circumstances, but I can assure you that God is bigger than your problems. Somebody says, I just feel like something good is about to happen. I don't know if it is or not. I don't know if tomorrow is good news or bad news, but it really does have the world in His hands. And He's before you and he's behind you and he's over you and he's under you and he is for you. No problem. You're hard to God to solve. Every preacher that has ever preached this little outline that I have given has always given a fourth point. There is no person too hard for God to save. But this is my problem. And nobody gets saved in the chapter. And I want to be textual. I want to be textual. And so I thought it's a good point. But it's not in the text. So just to be faithful to the text, I, I, I'll just cut that out. No person. T- it's a good point, but I, it needs to be in the text. I want to be a Bible preacher. But then I read it again. Would you look at verse number 28? Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shouted. There was no bigger pagan in the world than Nebuchadnezzar. This is the man that built the image. Huh? Bow down. Throw the boys in. Heat it up seven times more. He's not just an idolater. He thought he was God. Huh? Do you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up in pride, huh? And God said, I'll just bring you down. What I'll, I'll just take you down a notch or two. And I mean, he had this vision that disturbed him, brought Daniel in. The interpretation disturbed him more than the dream, huh? And God literally turned him out to the fields and turned him into a wild beast. His hair and his nails grew out long and they didn't know what to do with it. And I mean, God brought him down and then God gave him his sanity back. Yeah. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar wrote about it. Daniel chapter 4 is the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the Adolf Hitler, the Hussein of our day. Here it is, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace. 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 Well, he ain't never said peace to nobody before. Huh? This sounds more like the Apostle Paul than it does a bloody dictator. Peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are he 
his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting. Well, I must be reading an epistle. His dominion is from generation to generation. Look down here in verse number 34, can you? Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me. I bless the Most High, and I praise and I honor him that saved heavenly forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? Look at verse 37. Are you reading your Bible? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose words are truth and his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride is able to obey. That is a gospel track written by Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, since I'm preaching that, I'll just preach it the way I believe it. I believe old Nebuchadnezzar got saved. He sure sounds like it, to be honest with you. He don't. You know. I mean, that's one of the clearest testimonies of the power of God in the Old Testament right there. I believe with all of my heart. I believe with all of my heart that one day I'll walk up to him in heaven. I'll be able to shake his hand. And say, oh, Neb, it's good to meet you. Reggie Gospel Track and Daniel 4. Really blessed my heart. Worst sinner that ever lived. If God could save Nebuchadnezzar, I know God could save you. I don't know who you've been praying for forever that you give up on. But if God could change his heart, God could change their heart. No sinner has gone too far beyond the grace of God. No sin too great that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. I'm done. My wife, we should go meet her godly lady. My wife grew up in the hills of West Virginia. That's where we're from. And um, my wife's parents would say she grew up in a Christian home. We met in church and what have you. But her grandparents on her dad's side were not Christians. Her dad, first generation Christian. I didn't know her granddad, but I knew her grandma, Alice Gibbons. Grandma Alice, what we called her. Grandma Alice was had a rough life. Um, Rough childhood, that old mountaineer, rough life. And she was hard. She was hard. Oh, she's nice enough you talk to her. But if you tried to give her the gospel, she'd shut you down for years. You couldn't, couldn't create a crack in there at all. She'd shut you down. My wife would write her letters, send her gospel tracts. We'd go up there to visit her and she'd try to get her to go to church. And as long as you didn't try to Preach the gospel to her. She's fine. But for years, you couldn't witness to her at all. My twins, i got twins of 28 now, but my twins were kids just two, three years old. We'd have family altar. We'd pray. And we'd always ask them, have you a prayer request? Every night, pray for Grandma Alice gets saved. Two years old, three years old. If they've said it once, they said it a thousand times. Pray for Grandma Alice gets saved. And we get on our knees and we pray for Grandma Alice to get saved. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't think she'd ever get saved. How are you going to get saved? We can't witness to you. I prayed for their sake. I didn't have a whole lot of faith. I had pretty much given up on her, to be honest with you. 
Grandma Alice was 78 years old. 78. 78. One Saturday morning, two ladies from the local church came by to visit her on a Sunday morning. Saturday morning. Wasn't a soul winning visitation. It was just two friends just come by to sit down and talk to her. Having coffee around the card table in the little kitchen in the little trailer. Out of the blue, one of those ladies said, Alice, how come you never got saved? And for the first time, Alice said, I, I don't know. And she said, well, Alice, wouldn't you like to get saved? And 78 years old, Alice said, you know, I've been thinking about that. I really would like to get saved. And when I say she got saved, I mean she got saved. I mean she got really saved. She called, called Jared, her son, wife's dad. Said, Jerry, God, come pick me up. Take me to Walmart. Got to buy a dress. Going to be in church Sunday. 78 years old. 78 years old. Walked the aisle. Was baptized. And about a year later, God took her home. And I'm just saying to you tonight, I don't know who you've given up on. Who you prayed and you prayed and you prayed. But they're not going to get saved. Pray one more time. Come to the altar one more time. Because I'm telling you, in an instant, 10,000 prayers were answered around that little card table. And if God can save Grandma Alice, who else could God save? I grew up playing checkers. I never played chess a lot. I grew up playing checkers. Around the turn of the 20th century, there was a chess player who was always also an artist. He painted a portrait that became a very famous portrait and it was a portrait of a young man playing chess with the devil. And if you've played chess you know that you can anticipate moves ahead of time and the objective is to checkmate your opponent where he has no options, he has no moves that he can make. The game is over before it is over. He is checkmated. And this artist had painted this picture and there is the board and there is the young man and there is the devil and they are playing for his soul. And on the board, the devil has him checkmated. You can see it in the fear and the terror of the young man knowing he's played the devil's game and he's lost. You can see it in the glee of the devil's face. I've got him. They hung that painting in a famous art gallery and grandmaster champions from around the world would come and they would scrutinize and study that chessboard to see if there was any way to get him out of the checkmate. The best chess players in the world would look at it. He got him. He has no move to make. There was a grandmaster that lived in Louisiana. His name was Paul Morphy. One day Paul Morphy came to the art gallery and looked at that painting. And they say for about an hour he just stared at that painting. Just looked. Scrutinized every move. And all of a sudden he got animated. He got, he got, he got excited. 
He said, young man, he said, young man, make, make, make that move, right? Young man, make that move, make that move. He had found one move that everybody else had missed. And I say to you on this Monday night, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you have one move. It is to the cross of Christ. So dear sir, dear ma'am, make that move. Make that move. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word tonight. Use it to comfort and encourage somebody's heart. I don't know what it is.